Why follow Christ? That leads us at once to ask another question. Who is Christ? And what has he done for us? And that's what I'm going to talk about tonight. Who is Christ and what has he done for us? There are many possible answers to that. If we look in the New Testament, what we find is not a single way of understanding the saving work of Christ, not a single systematic theory, but we have a whole series of images and symbols set side by side. They are symbols of profound meaning and power, yet for the most part they are not explained but left to speak for themselves. If we want to understand the work of Christ, it's better to follow what the New Testament does and to have a number of different images in our mind. We shouldn't isolate any single image of Christ's work, but we should combine them together. Our best motto is safety in numbers. Now this evening, if we have enough time, I shall look at seven possible models for salvation. This list is not exhaustive. It would certainly be possible to add other models as well. And we shouldn't see these models as alternatives, but we should work with all of them, for each one reveals part of the truth to us. This leads me to recall the first time I traveled to America half a century ago as a student in 1959. In those days you had to be very rich to fly by air and so I went by boat on one of the Cunard liners, the Queen Elizabeth. The journey lasted five days and the ticket included not just sleeping accommodation but also the meals. To my immense satisfaction I found that at mealtimes the menu was not divided up into a limited number of courses. You were given a huge card mentioning all kinds of things you might eat and you could have as many courses as you liked. Um, at breakfast for example uh, you could have porridge and cereal and fruit juice and then later on you could have at breakfast haddock and bacon and eggs if you felt like that in the heaving waters of the mid-Atlantic. <laughs> But the evening, the people at my table were not very imaginative. They just had three courses, uh, soup, meat, and pudding. 
I worked out that I could have seven courses at dinner. I'd have melon, then hors d'oeuvre, then soup, then fish, then meat, then cheese, and then the sweet, and perhaps one or two other things as well. I can remember walking up and down on the deck of the boat for over an hour in order to get up a good appetite for dinner. <laughs> the Cunard system of feeding was excellent for me as a hungry student, wanting to get my money's worth for my ticket. Now, tonight, I would like to apply the Cunard method to our subject. So I shall offer you a number of courses, and you can have all the courses, not a choice, but eat, try all of them. So with our different models of salvation, we shouldn't say either or, we should say both and. But before I look at the different models, I'd like to recall a meeting with a man in a railway train that I had not long ago. He sat down opposite me and stared at me for some time. And then he said in a low but clear voice, Are you saved? How did I reply? How would you reply to that question? I won't tell you at the moment what my reply was, but I may tell you at the end of my talk. So then, underlying all my seven models, there is one fundamental truth. Jesus Christ, as our Saviour, has done something for us that we could not do alone and by ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We need help. As our Lord affirms, without me you can do nothing. In one of my favourite books, Ghost Stories of an Antiquary by M.R. James, the author recounts in a school story how the boys in class were being taught to write conditional sentences in Latin. That is, sentences beginning with the word if, expressing a future consequence. The master told them each to write down a conditional sentence of their own invention. The boys handed in their bits of paper and the master looked at the top one. At once he grew pale, a look of horror came over his face, and he rushed out of the room. The boys wondered who had made a grammatical error so awful as to upset the master in this alarming way. The bit of paper read on the top, Si tu non veneris ad me, ego veniam ad te. If you don't come to me, I'll come to you. 
And strangely, the handwriting was not that of any of the boys in the room. Now, how the story continues, what it was that the schoolmaster so greatly dreaded, and how it eventually came to him, I shall not tell you. You must read the story for yourselves, and I don't want to spoil it for you. Let us simply apply the words on the bit of paper to the work of Christ. We could not come to God, so he has come to us. We could not, by our own efforts, cross the abyss which sin has created between us and heaven, so God in Christ has crossed the abyss and drawn near to us. Now let's look at my models. The first way of thinking of Christ is to think of him as a teacher. That, after all, was what people called Christ in his own day. They called him rabbi, teacher. When I go home at Oxford in the evening, I often pass a hot dog seller, and he always calls out to me, good night, rabbi. And I take that as a great compliment, because that was what they called our Lord Jesus Christ, a teacher. One who reveals the truth to us, who brings us light, disperses the darkness of ignorance from our minds. And we could take as a guiding scriptural text here, John 1, 9. He was the true light that enlightens everyone who comes into the world. Now, that's certainly part of the truth about the work of Christ. But it's very far from being the whole truth. Yes, we need teaching, but we need to be saved from sin. So this first model doesn't really allow for the tragedy and anguish of sin. It's a little too bright and optimistic. So I come on to a second model, ransom. We think on this second model of Jesus as paying a ransom on our behalf. As it says in Mark 10:45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The point of this metaphor is that previously we were enslaved to sin, now we are liberated. What Christ has done is to set us free, says St. Paul in Galatians 5.1. 
But this act of liberation on Christ's part is enormously costly. The ransom that Christ pays on our behalf is nothing less than his own life laid down for us on the cross. It was no easy task to set us free. An act of arduous reparation was required. So here on this second model we can say yes. The tragedy of sin has been taken into account. Now I come to a third model. And that is the model of sacrifice. And here we enter deep waters. For us today, the idea of sacrifice has lost much of its meaning. I'm going to make a great sacrifice this Lent. I won't eat any chocolate. No, sacrifice means surely much more than that. In the worship of the peoples of the ancient world, whether Hebrew, Greek, or Roman, sacrifice was everywhere taken for granted. In the Old Testament, there are many different kinds of sacrifice. Yet nowhere do we find a definition of what sacrifice is and how it works. In the New Testament, certainly you find sacrificial language applied to Christ. Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us, says Paul, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. And then in the first chapter of John's Gospel, the forerunner says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So here Christ is seen as the Paschal Lamb that was eaten by the Jews at the Passover in memory of the exodus from Egypt. Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection is the new Passover. Elsewhere we find it said in the New Testament that Christ is an atoning sacrifice. Helasmos for our sins. 1 John 2, 2. This recalls the sacrificial ritual on the Jewish Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when the people were sprinkled with blood to cleanse them from their sins. And so, in a similar way, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And we remember this every time we are present at the Divine Liturgy. When the priest, during the anaphora, the great prayer of offering, says the words of Christ at the Last Supper, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. 
So sacrificial ideas are written into the central act of our Christian life, the Holy Eucharist. But what does sacrifice really mean? Four things I'd ask us to hold fast tonight. First, a sacrifice is fundamentally an offering or gift made to God. Secondly, the true sacrifice is to offer to God not an animal or some object, but ourselves. Sacrifice means self-offering. Then a third point. Many people think the essence of sacrifice is the death of the sacrificial victim. Lamb, goat or calf as the case may be. But the true purpose of sacrifice is not death but life. If the victim is slain in the Old Testament sacrifices, that is not because its death has value in itself, but through killing the animal, you offer its life to God. Now, a fourth point, however, and this applies to sacrifice understood as self-offering. In order to be truly a sacrifice, the gift or offering must be voluntary. That which is extracted from me by force against my will is not truly a sacrifice. Now, we can apply all this to Christ. First, Christ as sacrifice is offered up to God. Second, Christ offers himself in sacrifice. Third, when he dies on the cross, it is that we may have life. This is made transparently clear when his death on the cross is followed by his life-giving resurrection. And then fourthly, and this is most important, Christ was not under any compulsion to die, but freely he laid down his life on our behalf. As he says in John chapter 10, I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. If Christ had not gone willingly, voluntarily to his death, his crucifixion would have been simply a miscarriage of justice, an act of violence, a murder. But because he lays down his life willingly, his death becomes a life-giving sacrifice for the sins of all the world.
Now, underlying the whole notion of sacrifice as voluntary self-offering, there is one all-important factor, and here we're coming near to the heart of the matter of who Christ is and what he has done for me. Underlying the notion of sacrifice, self-offering, willing self-offering, there is love. Why does Christ lay down his life out of love? As it says in John's Gospel, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the uttermost. Love, then, is the key to the whole idea of sacrifice. Sacrifice is voluntary self-offering inspired by love. Love to the uttermost. Love without limits. Now, linked with the idea of sacrifice in the West, Anselm, in particular, developed the notion of satisfaction. Christ dying on the cross makes satisfaction to God the Father. God's honor has been offended by sin. Christ makes satisfaction for that. Well, I don't include that among my different models. Many orthodox in the past have used Anselm's idea of satisfaction. But it is not scriptural. You will not find the word satisfaction in the New Testament. And it uses legalistic categories. Rather than seeing the work of Christ as an act of love, so I put that on one side. But there is another model, a fourth model, not satisfaction, but substitution. And the evangelicals are very keen on this fourth model. They think of the work of Christ as an act of penal substitution. Now this idea, unlike satisfaction is certainly scriptural. St. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, yes, there is the idea of substitution in the New Testament, that Christ dies instead of me. I can remember as a student hearing that great evangelical preacher Billy Graham speak on this in Oxford, but he interpreted substitution in a way that I found slightly disturbing. He said, at the moment when Christ died on the cross, the lightning of God's wrath hit him instead of you. 
No, I'm not so happy about that. We can indeed say Christ died instead of me, but we need to balance this by saying Christ died on behalf of me. And we need to say Christ in me and I in him. Substitution language, though it is scriptural, should be combined with the language of indwelling. Then I come on to a fifth model, if I'm not exhausting you too much. And this is the model of victory. Here Christ's work is, of salvation is seen as a cosmic battle between good and evil, between light and darkness. Dying on the cross, rising from the dead, Christ is victor over sin, death and the devil. And if we want a scriptural text here, let us think of Christ's last word on the cross as recorded in the Gospel of St. John. Teteleste. Usually that's translated, it is finished. But this is not to be seen as a cry of resignation or despair. Christ is not saying, it's all over, this is the end. But he's affirming, it is accomplished, it is fulfilled, it is completed. And what is completed? The victory, the victory of suffering love. Now, of course, this image of Christ as the victor is especially close to the heart of our Orthodox worship. We've only to think of the service at Paschal Midnight with its constant refrain, Christos anestiek nekron, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death. There we have at Paschal Midnight expressed in overwhelmingly powerful form the sense of Christ's victory. And we can think also of the marvelous sermon attributed to St. John Chrysostom, which is read usually at the end of Matins or at the liturgy, with its powerful sense of triumphant joy. There's a traditional story told from the early days of communist persecution in Russia which illustrates this theme of Paschal victory. An atheist lecturer came to a village and all the inhabitants were assembled to listen to him. He explained at great length that there was no God. And he said at the end, are there any questions? At the back of the audience, the parish priest stood up and said, I'd like to say something. The atheist lecturer, sensing trouble, told him, you must be very brief. I will allow you only half a minute. 
Oh, said the priest, I don't need nearly as much time as that. All I have to say is this, Christ is risen. And then all the audience spontaneously replied, He is risen indeed. Then the priest went back to his place. That was his answer to the atheist lecturer, and that is our answer to the world's misery. The risen Christ is victor over darkness and despair. Now the great advantage of this victory model is that it holds together the cross and the resurrection. They are seen as a single event, an undivided drama. Already when Christ dies on the cross, it is a victory. But the victory is at that moment hidden. When the myrrh-bearing women come on the third day to the tomb and find it empty, and when Christ appears to them once more alive, then the victory is made manifest. But this victory model has a difficult side. It can sound militaristic. It seems that the saving work of Christ is being understood in terms of superior force, of coercive power. So, we need to say that the death and resurrection of Christ are indeed a victory, but a victory of a very unusual kind. What we have on the cross is the victory, not of superior force, not of military might, but the victory of suffering love. On the cross Christ is victorious through his weakness, through his self-emptying, through his kenosis, to use the Greek term. So a victory, yes but a kenotic victory. So this is the sense in which we understand the victory of Christ, which saves us. Despite all the suffering, physical and mental, that is inflicted on him, Jesus goes on loving humankind. His love is not changed into hatred. So we are to see the victory as not a military victory, but rather the victory of suffering love, unchanging love, love without limits. As the Protestant theologian Karl Barth said, the Christian God is great enough to be humble. And that's what we see above all in his victory on the cross. God is never so strong as when he is most weak. And then 
A sixth model. There's light at the end of the tunnel. Um, my sixth model is example. Now, just as the satisfaction idea of the atonement is associated with a particular Latin writer, Anselm of Canterbury, so this model is associated with another Latin writer, Peter Abelard, Anselm's younger contemporary. Abelard sees Christ's life and sacrificial death as the supreme example of love in action. Love, so he maintains, is deeply attractive. And in this way the love of God shown in Christ's life and death evokes the response of love in us. I remember a hymn that I used to sing in my childhood as an Anglican. Oh, dearly, dearly has he loved, and we must love him too. Christ's love, made manifest on the cross, acts as a spiritual magnet, drawing us all to him. As Christ says, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to me. Now, a great many Western writers in modern times have been attracted by this sixth model. It moves completely away from the notion of God as angry, jealous, vindictive, bloodthirsty. It moves away from legal categories like satisfaction. It moves away from militaristic imagery of a battle. Instead, it interprets God and his salvation in terms of love. But there is a difficulty. If Christ has merely set us an example, does that mean that we have to follow that example by our own efforts? Has Christ objectively changed things? <coughs> now, there's a story told of the great Scottish commander, Robert the Bruce, in the 13th century, that illustrates the difficulty. Fighting against the invading English, he was repeatedly defeated. One day after a severe reverse, he was sitting alone in a room and he thought, it's no good, I must give up, no point in going on fighting. Then he looked up and he saw a spider that had fallen out of its web and was trying to get back again. It kept pulling itself up by the thread on which it, it was hanging and it kept falling back. But it went on trying until at last it managed to get back into the web. Robert the Bruce uh, applied this lesson to himself. He decided 
to try one last time to go out and fight the English again. And on this final occasion, he decisively defeated them. Now, the spider may have encouraged Robert the Bruce by setting him an example but it didn't actually change anything in his outward objective situation. So we have to ask, when we look at this example model, has Jesus on the cross done no more for us than the spider did for Robert the Bruce? Has he just set us an example and nothing more? Does he just leave us to follow his example by our own efforts, relying on our own strength? Surely that's not enough. We don't just need an example, we need help. We need the help of God's grace. This criticism, however, based on the story of Robert the Bruce, totally misconceives the scope and dynamism of love. Love is creative. It's not just a subjective feeling. Love is an objective energy in the universe. If you love somebody with all your heart, then you change the world for them. If a child has been loved by its parents in infancy, that will change the whole way in which he or she experiences the world later on. Because of the love of the parents, the child will have a courage, trust and hope that it would otherwise have found it difficult to achieve. By the same token, hatred is also an objective force. If a child has not been loved by its parents but has been rejected, that will mark her or his life afterwards and when the child grows up it will find it uh, harder to love and trust others because it has not been loved itself. From this we see how love is an enabling force. Our love alters the lives of others. And if this is true of our human love, it is much more true of the divine human love of Christ our Saviour. By loving us, he does not just set us an example, but he also changes the world for us, giving us a meaning and hope that we could not otherwise discover. So the love of another infuses into me a transfiguring force, a transformative power. Love empowers just as hatred depotentiates. 
That is true of our interhuman relations, but it's much more true of the love poured out for us by the Son of God. Now, if we combine together the images of sacrifice, victory, and example, we can discover a common thread that unites them together, and that thread is suffering love. What makes Christ's death a redeeming sacrifice is precisely that he offers himself willingly in love. The victory of Christ is nothing else than the victory of suffering love. And the example of this suffering love alters our life and fills us with grace and power. So these three models, sacrifice, victory, example, are really just three aspects of the same reality. If we join these three models together, I think we come close to a convincing picture of who Christ is and what he's done for us. But there's one last model I'd like to mention, that of exchange. To appreciate this model, think of Christmas. What do we do in early December? We send each other's greetings and we exchange presents. And that is exactly the meaning of the Feast of the Incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas. When Christ was born in Bethlehem, there occurred the greatest and most wonderful of all possible exchanges. He took our humanity, that's our gift to him through the Blessed Virgin Mary, and in exchange he enabled us to share in his divine grace and glory. Saint Irenaeus of Lyon in the second century underlines this truth. In his unbounded love he became what we are so as to make us what he is. Saint Athanasius of Alexandria in the fourth century is yet more succinct. He became man that we might become God. Aftosga en inthropisem inaimis theopithomen. He became incarnate that we might become God. He was humanized that we might be deified. There we have the orthodox idea of salvation as theosis, deification. 
Salvation is not just a change in our legal status before God. It's not just an imitation of Jesus through moral effort. But salvation signifies an organic, all-embracing transformation of our created personhood through a genuine participation in divine life. He became what we are. He shared totally in our human nature and our human condition. And in that way, he has healed us. He has enabled us to share in his eternal glory, to become partakers of the divine nature, as it says in the second epistle of Peter. So here we have a seventh model, life-giving, healing exchange. He comes down that we may go up. He takes our humanness and we share in his glory. Now, there are certainly other aspects of the Christian doctrine of salvation that I could mention. Salvation is not solitary but social. We are saved in the church as members of it and in union with all the other members. We are saved more specifically through the sacraments of the church, above all baptism and Holy Communion. But I think I've said enough for this evening. But I have one last task. I've spoken about salvation and the work of Christ, how Christ is teacher, ransom, sacrifice, substitution, victory, example, exchange. But I haven't told you how I answered the gentleman in the railway train who said, are you saved? Well, what should I say? I might have said, no, I'm not saved. But that, surely, I cannot say, because it would be denial of Christ, my Saviour. Yet, I hesitate to say, yes, I am saved. Might that not be a little too confident? Do you not remember how Paul, long after his conversion on the road to Damascus, expressed the fear that after I have preached to others, I might find myself rejected? God is faithful. He will not change. But what about me? I might turn away. So perhaps I should have answered the man in the railway train. I don't know. But that he might well have considered a rather feeble answer. He might have said, well, you'd better go and find out. And he might have said, if you don't know, 
what do you mean by going about dressed in black like a clergyman? <laughs> so what I said was, I trust by God's grace I am being saved. Not I am saved, as if it's all finished, complete, tied up. But I am being saved. Salvation, on the orthodox understanding, is a process. Not a single event, but an ongoing journey, a pilgrimage, that is only completed at the moment of our death. So that was my answer to the man in the railway train. But if you can think of a better answer, please let me know. <laughs> Thank you.